Okay, now could you please stand to read our passage for this morning? Miss that. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue from an anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, and besides all this, there is, an, there is a chasm that is fixed, a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his kingdom. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this familiar passage, may you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, make its truths be driven home into our hearts. May you help us to see in this parable matters of life and death and of the afterlife. May you help us to see that your word is the dividing line. And our response to your word is what determines whether we will be with you in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity whether we will suffer anguish in hell for all eternity. Lord, I pray this morning that you would all cause us all to respond to your word with faith and repentance and worship and love for you. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. As I was talking to the children, I wonder if, if, if you can remember times 
that you have felt separated from others? Do you have felt distance from others, even those who are close to you or should be close to you? And we really felt a degree of that over the past year and a half with the COVID situation. Many in our church family have experienced separation. Words like social distancing that we never even heard before became a byword. And some people were separated because of concerns over getting sick. And others were separated because of, of convictions about government restrictions one way or the other. But praise God, Providence Baptist Church, that we can say that the Lord has carried us through. Yes, it's been hard. Yes, it's been really hard. And it's still hard in some respects. But the Lord has indeed carried us through it. Carried us through. And we, we don't all share the same convictions about COVID or about how we should respond to COVID. But we do have unity in Christ. In fact, I believe that, that our unity in Christ in this local church is, is stronger than it's ever been because we've walked through the fire together and we are still together. Our unity in Christ runs deeper than, than a, a doctrinal affiliation or a, a practical affiliation. Yes, doctrine is, doctrine is very important. But our unity is in Christ. Our unity has been purchased for us by Christ. Our unity with God is he's broken down the wall of separation that separates us from God and has broken down the wall of separation that separates us from each other. And we can rejoice, we must rejoice and praise God because this is a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we can have unity with those who have a different perspective, even those who are no longer part of this church family because we have a unity in Christ. And yes, we might experience a degree of, of separation in this life. But praise God, there will be no separation between saints in the afterlife. We strive against separation in this life while well, we anticipate a time when there will be no more separation between us, when we will have perfect unity with all those who call on the name of Christ. We'll have that unity and enjoy that perfect unity for all eternity in the afterlife. But we realize that there, there are some who we cannot help but be separated from whether it's coworkers or, or neighbors or friends or even, even members of our own family. And we seek to love them. But some of them are so offended by our faith that they distance themselves from us or even avoid us altogether. If you've experienced that, it's excruciatingly painful. But the saddest part about this is that even while there might not be a total separation in this life, there will be eternal separation in the afterlife. As all who are trusting in Christ go to be with him and, and all who have not trusted in Christ go to, to eternal torment in hell. 
And the only way for us to have real unity and to, to avoid that separation is, is for them to place their faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins. And so it's, it, we know that the tragedy, we, we understand if we have, have any level of, of a biblical doctrine of hell, this motivates us. And of love for God and, and love for the lost to, to share the gospel with them. So we can be, can be together in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. Well, this morning we're going to hear about two men who are separated in life and separated in the afterlife. Their separation in life was obvious. They were completely different social strata. One was filthy rich, and the other was dirt poor. But they were also in completely different religious strata. Where the religious authorities at this time thought that because this, this man was rich, that he was somehow under the favor of God. And that this poor man, because of the ways that he suffered, must have been in disfavor with God. But this passage, as we'll see, is the, the ultimate reversal. It's not just that the physical circumstances of the rich man and Lazarus are reversed, but that their spiritual circumstances are reversed. And all the benefits that the rich man enjoyed in this life will be useless in the afterlife. Whereas the suffering of this poor man, of Lazarus, will, will give way to lavish provision in the afterlife. It's a story of rags to riches. And a story of Riches to anguish. Separation in life leads to separation in the afterlife. Now this story before us is, is a parable. It's, it's not historical, it's hypothetical. It represents, though, it represents truths of life and the afterlife that are being lived out right there in front of Jesus and have been lived out countless times after. Jesus, in this passage, we remember the context, he's addressing the Pharisees. They'd, they'd grumbled about him back in chapter 15 for receiving sinners and eating with them. And then they'd ridiculed him. Just We just saw this a few verses ago in, in chapter 16, 14, after he told the parable of the unrighteous steward to teach that you should use your finances to invest in eternity. They'd ridiculed him. They grumbled against Jesus. Yet now we see again that as the Pharisees who are in fact dead wrong. I see in this passage three main points. Verses 19 to 21, separated in life. Verses 22 to 26, separated in the afterlife. And then in verses 27 to 31, separated by the truth. So the rich man and Lazarus were separated by a gate in life, and they're separated by a chasm in the afterlife. And this separation was caused by their disparate responses to the truth. They were separated by their responses to the truth. Acceptance in one case and rejection in the other. The Pharisees, who this parable is aimed at, were separated from true Israel by their disparate responses to the truth. 
The Pharisees who held themselves to be teachers of the law are actually the ones who had rejected the word of God, the truths of God's word. The damned and the redeemed are separated by their disparate responses to the truth. So then, separated in life, verses 19 to 21. First, notice that Jesus introduces us to the rich man. He tells us that the rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. Take note of the details here. His, his wealth is presented as, as opulence, as overflowing and even wasteful wealth. He was clothed in purple. This, this refers to his outer garments. And this, the only way that, that you could make something purple in the ancient Near East was with a very costly dye that was, that was harvested from the Murex marine snail. We think of, of Lydia in the book of Acts, who was a seller of purple. She was a very wealthy woman. And so that's his outer garments. And his undergarments, we're told, are fine linen. And together they, they reveal luxury and, and reveal that he is ostentatious. Well, then Jesus tells us about the rich man's food. Daily, he feasted sumptuously. His table is further evidence that he lived in extravagant indulgence. He lived in the lap of luxury. Feasting, if you remember, has been a theme since back in chapter 12. And, and in, in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, they all include Jesus' discussion of feasting. But, but especially in chapter 14, where Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for, for taking prominent places at the feast. And he admonished them not to invite their wealthy friends and family, but the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, so that they might be welcomed at the table of the Lord. So they had rejected the poor in favor of the wealthy. And he goes on to say in chapter 14 that, that they were actually rejecting the actual invitation of the Lord, of the master of the house. They said they would come, but when the servant came out to say that the, the feast is ready, they, they made all kinds of excuses. So they actually found themselves excluded from the feast of the Lord. We also saw in, that, in, in chapter 14 that instead of the, the wealthy, it's actually the, the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, the one who they were supposed to invite to their table, they are the ones who will be at the Lord's table. We saw also in chapter 15 in the, the parable of the prodigal son that, that at the, the repentance of, of the prodigal as he returns and the father throws a lavish feast, the elder brother is on the outside looking in. He will not come in to the father's feast. And we explain then that this is the, the Pharisees. They are the elder brother. And we're told here, chapter 16, 14, that the Pharisees were lovers of money. The Pharisees were lovers of money. The rich man is them. The Pharisees are the rich man. And notice here that the rich man is, is given no name. It, Perhaps it's an invitation for the Pharisees to insert their own names into the parable. Well, now Jesus introduces us to Lazarus. In fact, he's the, 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 the lack of name of the rich man is glaring because Lazarus is the only person named in all of Jesus' parables. 
There's another famous Lazarus who we know, the brother of, of Mary and Martha, the, who we meet in John's gospel account in, in John 11 as, as Jesus raises him from the, from the dead. This is not that Lazarus. The name Lazarus comes from Eleazar, who's a, a prominent name in Jewish culture. Eleazar, you may remember, is the, was the son of, of Aaron. He's the second priest of Israel. And the, the name Eleazar or Lazarus means God has helped. God has helped. So, so let's see how God helps Lazarus. Again, the, the rich man lived in the lap of luxury, but Lazarus is at the other extreme. He was laid at the rich man's gate. And the word that's translated laid here is, is often translated thrown or, or cast down. Lazarus was probably crippled or otherwise incapacitated, possibly from starvation. Just cast there outside of the rich man's gate. But notice a further detail about the rich man in the description of Lazarus. We're told again that he's laid at the rich man's gate. Now, this word that's translated gate suggests an ornate large gate or portico like you'd see in the gates of a city or of a palace. So the rich man lived in a grand home, but Lazarus has no home. Jesus doesn't mention his clothes, only his sores that are licked by dogs. Lazarus didn't feast sumptuously. He didn't eat at all. He would have been happy even just to eat the crumbs, that the waste that fell from the rich man's table. And read elsewhere in scripture about dogs eating under the table. But here the dogs are, are licking Lazarus' sores. Remember dogs in Jewish culture, this is not a, a, a service that the dogs are doing to him. Dogs in Jewish culture, are unclean. So it's a further picture. The man is being rejected. He's unclean. He's on the outside. He's an outcast. But notice another contrast between these two men. The, the rich man in this parable, we'll see, we, we see him as an, as an active agent. He's feasting. And later on with, in the parable, he's we're going to see that, that, that he is passive and quiet while the, the, the rich man is speaking. He's speaking, he's presuming upon Abraham, as we'll see. So together, when we take it all together, this, this paints a, a picture of, of absolute opulence versus abject poverty. The rich man is clothed in purple and fine linen, but Lazarus is clothed in sores. The rich man feasted sumptuously, but Lazarus desired to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The rich man lived in a palatial home, but Lazarus is thrown outside the rich man's gate. And so a gate, a gate separated these two men. The rich man was on the inside, and Lazarus was on the outside. Again, Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees. As, they, as the Pharisees heard this parable, they would have concluded that the rich man was the good guy. The, the Pharisees would have concluded, they would have believed that the rich man was being blessed by God, and that the poor man was being punished by God for some offense. Because the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, they, they saw themselves 
in, in their opulence, as we were told, their lovers of money, that they, they believe that, that God is having favor with them, that, that their wealth is a sign of God's favor. That they're on the inside, while the poor and the crippled, the lame and the blind are on the outside. And they, they also concluded that, that these people were, were unclean and were therefore excluded from temple worship. So then the Pharisees would have concluded that their material condition reflected their spiritual condition. This is a first century prosperity gospel. There's really nothing new under the sun. The Pharisees again concluded that they were the good guys and the poor, the crippled, and the lame were the bad guys. You can see here how, how parables reveal the truth to those who are being saved and, and hide it from those who are perishing. But Jesus here is, is confronting a, a common cultural and religious presupposition. We, we see this kind of thinking, don't we, that the Pharisees had regularly in the Gospels, even from the disciples. Like in John 9-1, with a man born blind, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. We see it from Job's counselors. As they blamed Job, there's some secret sin in Job's life for the tragedy in Job's life. We see it in our culture too. Friends, please listen carefully. Wealth is not a sign of God's approval, nor is poverty a sign of God's disapproval. And you can apply this more broadly. A life free from visible trials is not a sign of God's approval, and a life that's full of trials is not a sign of God's disapproval. Just think, we had Psalm 37 read for us. Psalm 73, the, the anagram of that is actually very much the same as, as, as Asaph considered the, the wicked and, and he almost fell, he almost, he almost stumbled because he, he considered the prosperity of the wicked. Well, he was suffering. It, it's, easy to, to, it's easy to slip into that kind of thinking, isn't it? But if we have that kind of prosperity thinking, what? how do you interpret that in, in light of, of the life of, of most of the people for most of the time in the Old Testament? Left the Apostle Paul. Said if we hope in Christ in this life only, we are, we are, we are worse than fools. Or the life of the, the rest of the apostles, or let alone the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Poverty and trials are, are not a sign of God's disapproval. Nor is wealth and a prosperous life a sign of God's approval. Jeremiah 9, 24. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Again, we, we don't want to go the opposite direction either to say that, that somehow that, that having riches is, is somehow immoral. We'll talk about this a little bit later, that, that wealth is, is amoral. It's either good or bad. It's, it's, it's your attitude towards it and what's you, what you do with it that can be moral or immoral. 
But prosperity thinking robs people. It robs genuine believers of comfort when they need it most. It actually hides true comfort from them. Making them think that, that in their trial, God is somehow against them. And it robs them of the opportunity to grow in the knowledge of God and to glorify Him in the midst of their trials. They're seeking to get out of the trial rather than to draw close to God in the midst of it. And that's the ultimate robbery. Prosperity thinking also keeps the greedy from offering comfort and help. Think about it. If you adopt this kind of thinking, you can be stingy and dress it in a cloak of self-righteousness. You can look at the needy and blame them for their circumstances. Now, we do know that at times someone is, who's foolish with their money or, or is, is, is sinning can end up in, in desperate financial situations. But, but if you're focusing on blaming them, it can really be self-righteous. You think, I don't need to help you. This is your fault. You see this in, in the caste system in India. Where quite often the poorest of the poor are neglected because of, because of the belief of karma. The belief that, that those who were poor had done something wrong in a former life and then are reincarnated into poverty. So they deserve that situation. So that the wealthy do not help the people is actually considered wrong to do that in that culture. But it's not just India. You don't have to believe in reincarnation to neglect the poor. I wonder, do we do that? Do we neglect the poor? Now, we need to realize that, that, that even the, 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 the poorest among us are wealthy compared to world standards. Very wealthy compared to world standards. Even very wealthy compared to the standards of many in our own community. But we might say, well, she's a drug addict. I'm not going to help her. He's lazy. He's a thief. I'm not going to help him. I'm not going to help this person because I don't want to enable them. Now, there's a sense in which you do need to be wise in these things, but, but is this reasoning a cloak for greed? I'm going to come back to the question that we were asking in the first half of, of chapter 16. Are you using your resources to invest in the kingdom of heaven? Are, are you being shrewd with your wealth like, like we're, we're commanded to do in, in Luke 16, 18? Are, are you using the unrighteous wealth to make friends? Will, will you be welcomed into eternal dwellings? Luke 16, 9. And many in our city live in, in gated communities. Now, we have, we have several gated communities in this neighborhood. I'm, I'm not saying that gated communities are wrong. They, they can actually make sense to help keep criminals out. But do you go outside of your gates to help people? Or do the gates that separate you from others reveal that you are actually locked out of the kingdom of God? So that takes us to the, the second point. These two men were separated in life. And they were separated in the afterlife. Verses 22 to 26. The rich man were, and Lazarus were separated by a gate in this life. And both men die. 
And now the ultimate separation begins. First, Jesus tells us about Lazarus. He, Lazarus dies, but, but we, we know here that the death is not the end. It's only the beginning that, that Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Now, Lazarus' spiritual state wasn't clear before, but, but it's evident now. And once his companions were dogs, now he's Abraham's companion. Instant elevation at the point of death. Abraham's side represents welcoming the welcoming of the redeemed into heaven. The rich man may not have had compassion on Lazarus, but God does. The rich man may not have helped Lazarus, but God does. And so now we begin to see the name, the, the Lazarus's name being, being realized. God has helped. God has helped. This is a, a glorious spiritual reversal. This is the ultimate rags to riches. The outsider is now inside. The rich man dies as well. He is buried. But their destination is different. He goes to Hades. And technically, all the dead believers and unbelievers go to Hades where they await the resurrection and, and final judgment. And so Hades really refers simply to the place of the dead. However, the, the, uh, where the unsaved dead go to conscious torment as they await hell, as the, the saved dead go to paradise where, and joy where they await the new heavens and the new earth. But nonetheless, in the New Testament, Hades never refers to the abode of, of those who are saved. First, to the suffering that comes. And Jesus' reference to the rich man in Hades and Lazarus with Abraham is meant to, to show the, the separation between these two men. We're told here that the, the rich man sees Abraham. He sees Abraham, notice it's far off. And Lazarus with him. So Abraham and Lazarus are far off from the rich man. This is a, a distant separation. Please turn with me back to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, 22. Jesus has spoken about, in 24, about striving to enter through the narrow door. He says, for many I tell you will seek to enter but will not be able. This rich man was, was told, verse 27, depart from the Lord, you worker of evil. He is one who, who saw Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but himself cast out, verse 28. Lazarus is reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets in the kingdom of God, while the rich man is cast out, verse 29. The last has become first, and the first has become last. Verse 30. And as I mentioned earlier, in chapter 14, Jesus taught about not taking the high seat of the table. But here we have Lazarus at Abraham's side. Now, of course, Jesus will be at the place of honor at the table, but Lazarus here next to Abraham, the, the chief patriarch of Israel, was, was certainly at a place of honor. The, the separation between the, the rich man and Lazarus is an infinite separation. It is an eternal separation. So now Lazarus is 
truly on the inside, while the rich man is cast far away, as, as far away as can be. So this is another spiritual reversal. This is a, a tragic spiritual reversal. Everything is reversed. It's, it's reversed infinitely. It's reversed eternally. The rich man lived in luxury, and now he's in torment. Hell, I believe, will be even more hellish for those who lived in luxury on earth and did not repent and come to faith. And so this man, we can't rightly call him the rich man anymore because he has nothing. He cries out to Abraham, Father Abraham. Let's just stop there for a moment. Father Abraham. He regards Abraham as his father. He's appealing to Abraham. But is Abraham really his father? As John the Baptist warned the crowds in, in Luke 3 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. So calling Abraham your father does not make him your spiritual father. Not all the children of Abraham are spiritual offspring, Romans 9 7. The Pharisees claimed in, in John 8, 38 that Abraham was our father, but Jesus replied, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. You are of your father, the devil. The rich man cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the finger, his finger in water and so that, that it may cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. rich man wants Abraham to send Lazarus to relieve his suffering, even just a little. It's from the rich man asks Lazarus to provide a, a drop of water to cool his tongue, to give him some relief. It's a bitter irony. When this man was rich, he provided nothing not even a scrap of food to help Lazarus on earth. Even though he, he seems to have known Lazarus was there, he seems to have known him by name, making his, his callous neglect for, for Lazarus even more glaring. He did not do the works that Abraham did. He was a child of the devil. Abraham is, is regarded as a, a model of, of hospitality to strangers. And so Jews regarded Abraham as the, the model of hospitality. You see this in his, his dealing with the angels in, in Genesis 18. But the rich man showed no hospitality whatsoever. And so as he's no longer rich, he, he asks for mercy from Lazarus in the afterlife when he offered none to Lazarus in life. He was not the true child of Abraham. Now his failure to his failure to help Lazarus was not the, the cause of his damnation. It was evidence that his heart was not truly for God. He did not have any desire to love God or, or love other people. And Abraham replies to the to the man. Calls him child. There's a sense in which he is a child, not a spiritual child, but a, a 
He had the, the heritage as a Jew, as the Pharisees took pride in their heritage from Abraham. Abraham's not being harsher, but he answers directly. He, he denies the rich man's request on two grounds. First, because of the reversal. That the Lord's perfect justice is being meted out. That this man sh- should have used his, his unrighteous wealth and been received into eternal dwellings. From, again, from 16.9. Justice has been served. Jesus spoke of this in, in Luke 6, 24 and 25. But woe to you who are rich... For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This man had made his choice. He lived for this life. And so Lazarus now receives comfort while he receives torment. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark 8, 36. Again, money is neither amoral. Money is, is in itself is neither good nor bad. But this man's riches had become a snare to him. First Timothy 6, 9. As James warns in, in James, 5, James 5, 1 to 3. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be an evidence against you. And they will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Again, not making investments in eternity. Making investments in this life. He wanted his best life now. So you think about about the response of, of this formerly rich man now suffering torment in Hades. This is really the, the only passage in the entire Bible where, where we have the, the agonies of the unconverted described from the point of view who are suffering in it. As such, this is really one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible. It should really make us all shudder. It, it, it should make us shudder to think of, about what we have been delivered from if we're Christians. And I make a shudder to think about what, about the, the, our loved ones, even our family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers, and their eternal state, unless they repent and come to saving faith. This, this should really help to motivate you to evangelism when you consider the state of, of the, the torment, eternal torment. I'm lost in hell. I can hardly even think about it without tearing up. Let the agonies of those in Hades motivate you to help you to rescue them from the flames for the, for the glory of God. But we're not the only ones who should be shuddering. Unbelievers, you should be shuddering most of all. Stop and consider your destination. Remember, this is directed to the Pharisees who, who actually thought that they were good with God. They thought that it all sorted out. Because there's, there's this external standard of righteousness that they deceived themselves into thinking that they obeyed. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that you are good with God if you're not walking in faith and repentance. Where are you headed 
in the afterlife. If you were to die today, where would you go? To suffering or to paradise? And if you think you're going to go to paradise, what is the basis of your hope? If it isn't anything other than Christ alone, you're not headed to paradise. You go to the other place. Repent and turn to Christ before it is too late. This formerly rich man received good things in life but received torment in death. But Lazarus, on the other hand, received bad things in this life but is comforted in the afterlife. He has gone from suffering to comfort. And I believe the, the agonies that, that, that have been experienced in life will make the joys of those who suffer in the afterlife much sweeter. I notice here that, that Lazarus doesn't say anything. This probably the rich man says a lot. But Lazarus says nothing. And his silence speak, speaks volumes. He doesn't need to say anything. He has been justified by God. There is hope here. There is hope for those who have lost loved ones in Christ. They may have suffered in this life, but suffering has ended in Christ because Christ suffered in their place. The believing dead are in the presence of the Lord. Yes, we grieve for them. We miss them. But we do not grieve like those who are without gospel hope. Let me just say a few words here about, about the interpretation of, of parables and, and this one in particular. Just remember that we're, we're, not, we're not meant to see meaning behind every detail of a parable. That there's a, there are, there's a thrust of the truths that, 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 are, that Jesus is teaching here. As I said earlier, parables are instructive stories that are meant to open the eyes of those being saved and to blind those who are not. This parable is not meant to provide you with a theology of hell. We can't conclude from this that, that the believing dead are, are welcomed to Abraham's side. Nor can we conclude that there are conversations that take place between those who are, are suffering in torment and those who are in paradise. But the scriptures do affirm that there is a great chasm, that there is a, a radical separation in the place of the dead, between those who are suffering, between those who are in joy in the presence of the Lord. This is affirmed elsewhere in Scripture, Hebrews 9.27. And it, it is just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Once you die, there is no going back. Your eternity is sealed. For the believing dead, they don't want to come back. We grieve for them because we miss them, but they're in paradise. They don't want to come back. But the unbelieving dead will want more than 
anything to, to find, get some relief, just a moment's relief. They will find none. And to know that, I think that even, even small suffering, imagine, imagine if you had a toothache. Okay, have you ever had a toothache? Imagine if you had a toothache that you knew would never get better. Ever. Wouldn't the, the pain of that toothache be amplified many times over because you know that there's no escaping it? And that's just a toothache. Now imagine every single cell in your body. You know, unbelievers will have a, 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 a resurrection body as well. In a sense, the, unres- the unregenerate will have a resurrection body and it will be, they'll be glorified in a sense in that, that it can't be destroyed. So that every nerve ending, everything they experience, the pain they will suffer will never be extinguished. No smidgen of relief for all eternity. Once you die, your eternity is sealed. For all eternity. Verse 26, we see the second reason that Abraham gives her for refusing the formerly rich man's request. Besides this, there, he says, there is between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that, that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Now the rabbis wrongly taught that it's, it was possible for somebody to repent in Hades and cross over to the other side. But in the, in the afterlife, the, the saved and the us unsaved again are separated by this, this great chasm forever and ever and ever. And there is no crossing over from one side to the other. Again, unbeliever, you do not know whether this is the day that you will cross into eternity. There is no going back. You cannot say that you have not been warned. Repent now or you will find yourself separated, not just from believing family, not just from everything that is good, but you'll find yourself cut off from God himself. Finally, and more briefly, let's consider the grounds, the grounds for the separation in the afterlife. They're separated by the truth. Verse 27 to 31. They were separated in life, they're separated in the afterlife, and the grounds for that separation is their response to the truth. Having give up, given up on any hope or belief, this formerly rich man changes tack. Says, if someone can't cross the chasm from one side of the afterlife to the other, then maybe someone can go from the afterlife back to life. And so he says in, in verses 27 and 28, then I beg you, Father, still calling Abraham father, to send him to my father's house where I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. So now we see this, this formerly rich man is, is beginning to show from what appears to be the first time that we're aware of, he begins, begins to show concern for others. But before you begin to think that, that this somehow exonerates him, think about who he's showing concern for. He's showing concern for his family. He's showing concern for those who are like him. Like the friends or the brothers or the relatives of the rich neighbors in, or the rich neighbors in Luke 14, 12 who, who need no hospitality. 
He's only showing love for those who loved him. And even unconverted sinners can do that. Luke 6, 20, 32, and 33. So he's concluding here that, that were his family to receive a warning from the other side, calling them to repent, that they would repent. So that they wouldn't end up where he is. But there's a deeper implication here. Saying, if only I'd known. If only I had known that, that living a life in rebellion against God would, would land me up, it would land me in Hades in suffering. If only I'd known, I wouldn't have ended up here. So the implication of this is he doesn't think he deserves his doom. There's a, a song by, by the hip-hop artist Shy Lin called As the Hour Draws Near. He, he speaks of, of three men in a hospital. So Mr. Smith, as the hour of his death draws near, he, he says he's walking the path of all the, all the strugglers who died and he's, he's in fear of what awaits him on the other side. And so this is a, a man who is, was a believer but, but struggling with assurance, struggling with sin, he was actually welcomed into eternal life with God. Mr. Jones is also dying, and he's, but he says he's been walking the path of all the brothers who died. And he says he is prepared for what awaits him on the other side. He has placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so he's ready to die. But the third man, Mr. Michaels, as the hour draws near, he says to take my last breath, I'm walking the path of all the others who died, and I don't care what awaits me on the other side. I don't care what awaits me on the other side. Do you care what awaits you on the other side? Whether If you truly care about what awaits you on the other side, you will come to Jesus in faith. You will turn away from your sin and put your faith in him and him alone. And, and as the as he does take his last breath and Mr. Mr. Michaels dies and begins to experience the agony, his belligerence gives way to a letter from the grave where he, he cries out, this is an agony in this, an agony in this fire, just, just let me warn them. I'm in hell. Let me dictate a letter to them from hell. You can't do that. That's not how it works. So Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets, this is a description of the Old Testament, saying your, your brothers, they have the scriptures. You have the scriptures too. Your eternal destiny is not based on riches, but on the neglect of Scripture and its teaching. You have ignored the truths of God's Word. God has made the way of salvation abundantly clear in His Word. Now, when He speaks of the Scriptures here, He's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus is there in the Old Testament, from, from Genesis to Malachi. Jesus is there. 
And speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, Paul says to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17, remember, Timothy, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, he says, is breathed up by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scriptures contain all the truth that you need in order to be saved. The truth is there in the Old Testament, but we have the truth even more abundantly in the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. And so a messenger with a, with a messenger from the world beyond the grave could add nothing to them. Could add nothing to the scriptures. Their separation is caused by their disparate responses to Scripture, to the truths of God's Word. God's Word is the dividing line. I remember as a new believer, talking to somebody who's very close to me soon after my conversion, someone who professed faith, But I found that whenever scripture came up, remember I was a new believer, I, I didn't lack zeal, but I'm sure I lacked wisdom. So scripture came up a lot, as I, as I think you should. But whenever I brought up scripture, it ended up in a disagreement. Here's somebody who's professing to, to, to believe in Christ, but was rejecting the word of Christ. And I remember just being so troubled and, and so puzzled by that. And, and, I, and I went and spoke to a pastor. And I said, can, can someone be a Christian and deny the word of God? He said, it's very doubtful at best. Because the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, guides the believer into truth. And if somebody is categorically rejecting scripture, then they are rejecting the Holy Spirit. They're probably not saved. It was almost 30 years ago, and I remember that conversation like it was yesterday. We all must respond to God's word in faith and repentance, especially God's word about Jesus Christ. You can't get into heaven based on what your parents believe. You can't get into heaven based on church membership. You can't get into heaven based on, on the things that you do. You can't get into heaven if you were to give all of your money away to the poor. They give you no profit. If you have not love for God and love for others. God is not impressed by you and your money. God is only impressed with heartfelt change, with a change of conviction. It is only through the word of God and the power of the spirit that conversion comes. That repentance and faith come. Again, in order to be saved, you must believe the truth about God's word, especially the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not you can have your truth 
and I can have my truth. This is a lie of, of postmodern relativism. The idea that we can all have different truths is ridiculous. There is one truth. Everything else is a lie. How are you going to respond to the truths of God's word? All of them. Are you going to submit yourself to God's word or are you going to sit in judgment of God's word? And if you do, God's word will sit in judgment of you. Verse 30. This man is persistent. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now he knows his own failure to respond to the scriptures. Now he's looking for evidence. He's, he's looking for an escape. He's saying, well, hey, if somebody come to me? Verse 31, Moses said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. No sign will make somebody repent. Jesus had already warned in Luke eleven thirty nine 39 that an evil generation seeks after a sign. Even if a, even a messenger from the other side would not be able to convince them. Remember, in John chapter 11, we'll meet another Lazarus who does die and does come back from the grave four days later. Jesus raises him from the dead. He comes back. And what's the Pharisees' response? Wow, Jesus raised this man from the dead. We need to repent and worship Jesus. Quite the opposite. He said, we need to kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence. And we need to kill Jesus as well. And they do kill Jesus. Abraham is testifying here to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody will come back from the grave. We don't hear anything that Lazarus says. Imagine he had a few things to say. We hear lots from Jesus. After his resurrection, he's still speaking to us today in his word. But even then, even after the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, hundreds of witnesses saw him. But even that wasn't enough to convince a hard heart. It was not enough to convince. There was a, a few Pharisees, it seems, who were eventually converted, including them, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit. What is your response going to be to the one who came back from the dead? Will you repent? Will you, by God's grace, seek to love God and to love others? We will all die one day. Will you die like the rich man? Or will you die like Lazarus? As Martin Luther, the great reformer, lay dying, his friend Justice Jonas asked him, do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine you've taught? Luther answered emphatically, yes. We are all beggars. This is true. Luther's last words, we are all beggars. 
Friends, you and I are beggars. Spiritually, we were in the same state that Lazarus was physically. Spiritually, we were the rich man of this passage. But the Lord has had mercy and granted us faith and repentance. And we received life in Christ. We were beggars. But we have become kings and queens by the act of the Holy God. In the incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, laid aside his riches and took on rags so that we can receive his riches in glory. Our poverty became his. And his inheritance has become ours. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that though you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, you humbled yourself, taking on the form of a servant and died at the hands of a wicked creation. A creation that had been fallen and bent on rebellion against you. Lord Jesus, you submitted yourself to the creation that you were upholding with the word of your power We know that all of this was for the glory of your name, that you would save the people, your bride, by living for them and dying in their place, being raised on the third day as a testimony that that God is satisfied with the sacrifice that you made for us. Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help each one of us. Lord, everyone who is hearing these words to trust in Christ and Christ alone for the glory of your name.